Welcome to Rework, a podcast by Basecamp about the better way to work and run your business. I'm your host, Sean Hildner, and as always, I'm joined by Basecamp's co-founders and the authors of Rework, David Heinemeyer Hansen. How are you today? Good, good, Sean. And Jason Fried, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. All good. This week, we're going back to talking about what things we should be focusing on when building a business. And in this case, uh, I want to talk about focusing on the things that customers will always want instead of chasing that next big idea. So what's wrong with following the hot new trends and chasing down new technologies? I think that the idea behind this this essay was actually advice we got from uh, Jeff Bezos years ago. Oh, okay. He was basically saying that, you know, you can chase, you should innovate, you should look, well, not chase, but you should innovate and come up with new ideas, of course. But if you double down on the things that won't change, they'll always pay off. Those investments will always pay off. And his example was, People aren't going to wake up 10 years from now and wish that it took longer to get a package from Amazon. Yeah. So, you know, they invested in distribution centers all over the world. They've invested in, in their own shipping company. Like you can see that the investments they make there will never uh, not be worth it because there's some new fad that comes around kind of thing. He also said, like, people aren't going to wake up 10 years from now and wish things were more expensive at Amazon or people aren't going to wake up 10 years from now and wish customer service was worse. There's a set of core things that the business should do really well. And you got to figure out what those things are and uh, focus on those things without losing focus on other new things too. But don't just focus on new stuff. Yeah. And and let the basics sort of uh, crumble. Yeah. I would say it's partly an investment strategy that if you're going to put your money into something that's going to pay off in only one year, Holy shit, that's going to be an amazing <laughs> idea, right? Some new trends are that, but quite few of them. Versus if you're investing in something that you can essentially amortize over 5, 10, maybe even 20 years, um, you're pretty uh, well off. And while we in this essay focus on the customer, invest in things that the customer would want, that question pertains also to everything on the inside. Are you investing in the kind of features of your company itself that are going to pay off over the long term, right? Are you investing in having low turn of employees? Are you investing in having software that you can build up expertise over the long term? Are you constantly jumping from one thing to the other, whether between people or policies or technologies, they have a very short time to pay off the investment, which just generally doesn't pan out unless you have the magic touch and you keep picking the right lottery numbers. Um, well, good for you if that's you. Most mortals have to play the odds. And the odds are you need a bunch of base hits. Sure. Can't stake it all on like, oh, it's going to be these home runs. Now, that can be an argument for just overly conservative management of things. Well, we're going to invest in the things that we always did because those were the things we did and like they paid off in the past and that can lead you into a blind alley for sure. But if you have a base of like 20 of those things and then you go like, you know what, on these two things, we're going to, we're going to take a long shot, mix it up a bit. But the long shots and the, the new technology, the, the fad perhaps idea is um is the small part of the portfolio and the large part of the portfolio is just getting the basics right. So what is that sort of unmovable rock at the core of Basecamp as a business or as a product, I suppose? Well, I think one of the things we've really invested in from the start is, is customer service. It's like so fundamental and I think we're exceptionally good at it. 
And I think customers who interact with our customer service team see that we're a company that cares about their success and cares about helping people for real compared to a lot of companies you, you try to get in touch with them and maybe you hear back from them three days later or four days later or five days later, or maybe never. And this is especially true with something like, Hey, um, which is our email service. Like we actually provide customer service on email, which is just like, that does not, like you really can't email Gmail (laughs) and and get an answer. Uh, (laughs) yeah. You know, and, and so we've we've just said like it's incredibly important that we do this really well, that customers feel like and know that we're we're standing behind them. There's real people here. We don't send automated responses. We don't have bots answering questions. Um, we have human beings answering questions from other human beings, and usually you hear from us within the hour or so, um, sometimes within a few minutes, and uh, that's just something that's it's expensive to do. A lot of companies out there see it as a, as a loss. You know, which is why you call a lot of companies and you're on hold forever and they, they connect you with someone who just doesn't have any power or, or really knowledge. Or it's outsourced completely. Or outsourced completely. And yeah. you can see what that means. It's like, well, they say they care about their customers, but like they're outsourcing their customer service. Yeah, interesting. Um, so I think that's one example of, of, you know, something that we do. There's other things as well. Um, but uh, I think that's, that's something we've done from the beginning and it's been very important for us. I think it's a great example, too, of how some companies, for example, they have uh, live chat support. And what I've found is that that live chat support is, is a product they bought from someone. Yeah. And it's not even the same support department. And in fact, they can do less. And this is one of those areas where you go like, it's a checkbox feature. Oh, we have live support. And then you try to actually use the thing and you realize that this person doesn't know anything. They can't do anything. As soon as you have an actual problem, you're just wasting your time talking to this individual on that end of it. And what they'll tell you after wasting your time for 20 minutes, here I'm revealing all my customer service scars, um, <laughs> call, call the hotline. Yeah, right? call so this now number. you wasted right. 20 minutes on this interactive thing, and now you're going to call the hotline and you're going to be in, in line for 40 minutes until you get a, an actual person, right? And this is where the investments also connect on the inside. Why is the customer service at Basecamp good? Well, part of it is because we set up some policies that enable the people who work here to make a wide array of decisions and actually be able to help someone because they have some latitude to be able to do that. If someone is just reading off a script and that's all you get, there's not a lot of latitude there, right? And I think that it's those kind of things combined with, for example, the setup that we have, people on customer support who've been with Basecamp for over 10 years. At a lot of companies, as Jason said, customer support is a cost center. Yeah. And what happens with a cost center is you try to minimize the cost at all cost. And oftentimes that means just having not great working conditions, which means that people are not likely to stick around, which means you have higher churn, which means you have a bunch of new people who don't know all the tricks and who haven't been there for a long time, who can't provide the kind of service that someone else would talk about. Yeah. This connects to another essay I think we have in the book that's uh, everything is marketing. That customer service, for example, and investing in that is not just about providing the customer service. It's also providing the marketing through being the kind of business that people would talk about. Do you know what? I had this problem with Basecamp or with Hey. Hey is perhaps to some extent the better example, as Jason says, because the contrast is starker. I've never talked to a single individual who told me about a good experience they had writing Google about anything ever. <laughs> Literally, I'm like trying to think that that's actually quite remarkable. Google is in everyone's life. 
everyone touches Google to some extent. I cannot recall a single interaction I've ever had with someone who said like, you know what? I just had an amazing experience with Google customer service. I don't think I've ever talked to someone who's gotten a hold of Google's customer service. It probably starts there. Um, but even if, if you do, uh, like that's just not something people talk about. Do you know what though? Jason, just this, this uh, morning, I think yesterday, we continuously share the feedback we get from customers who are shocked yeah. <laughs> at the level of customer service they get. They're, they're shocked to the point they're writing a separate email to us just to say like, holy crap, that was amazing. <laughs> Marissa did the most wonderful job on this, or Chase did the wonder, most wonderful job on this, or someone else in the support team did such a above and beyond job that I am writing you yeah. to just tell you about that. That's something that's never going to change. Are we, are we going to have customers asking us questions about the products that they pay us for tomorrow, next year, 10 years from now? Absolutely. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Some of the other things you mentioned are like speed, ease of use, simplicity, when designing new products, are these still the things you focus on? Or do you focus on that kind of the new idea first? We try. It's not always the easiest thing to do. It's actually right. <laughs> probably the hardest thing to do <laughs> is, to, is to make this like the simplest version of something that does the most it needs to do, but nothing more kind of thing. We're building this new feature into Hey right now, this kind of snooze feature. And it's really straightforward and it's, it's really, it's really a neat thing. It's really simple and the domain language is great and the, the words are great and the features great. There's a lot of other versions of that we could have done. Um, for example, you'll be able to push an email off to another day, right? But you can't pick the time. So you can't say snooze this until Friday at 3 p.m. It's just snooze until Friday. And, and it doesn't sound like a big deal, but it kind of is a big deal. Because um, we chose not to have the time. Times actually add a lot of complexity for a variety of different reasons. Yeah. And Friday just means Friday morning. So I think we bubble it up at like 8 a.m. or something like that. And like that's basically enough. If you need it Friday at some point, it's around Friday at some point um, versus having to dial in your precision about when it pops up and, and all that stuff. So that's just an example. of th- We thought about that and we said, let's just simplify. That's enough. This feeling of enough is something we, we get to a lot. Um, so that's something we are always thinking about and always have been thinking about. I mean, products naturally get more complicated as, or more complex, I should say, not complicated necessarily. That's what you don't want. Complex is different. Complicated is like harder to use. Complex just means it can do more things. Sure. I think that's, that's something that we are still conscious about is making more complex products that don't feel complicated. Yeah. I think it's one of those areas too, that is such an interesting trade-off sometimes because you can take a product like Basecamp and say like, wow, it does a lot of things and it does. But is that more um, complex than trying to string five different products together and integrate those and set them up if you actually need those things? So you need a place to store your files, you need some to-do lists, you need some chat, you need some messages. If you were trying to weave your own sort of carpet together, out of a bunch of separate things. Like each of the individual things might look simpler. It just focuses on one thing. It's just files. Yeah, but if I can't solve my problem with just files, it's not less complicated. So I think we're often weighing those things that Basecamp has simple versions of a lot of features, but it does have some complexity in the fact that it tries to solve a substantial number of problems that people often think, yeah, do you know what? Let's just solve one little slice of it, which is a thing I've 
often been very interested in on the technical side too. That's the same thing Ruby on Rails does is to try to solve all the common problems around, hey, I want to build a new web app. You can be much less complicated than Rails is if you just only give yellow blocks of the length four, right? Think of the Legos. <laughs> That's just, do you know what? It's actually quite complex to build the thing you want out of just yellow blocks length four. Right. Like, if you have like a, a few more colors and a few more lengths and different sizes, it actually becomes easier to build the thing you want. Yeah. And that's always, that's the hard trade off, I think, for us, because we so willingly go in and go, we're going to accept some complexity here because we're trying to solve a whole problem. Can you run your company on Basecamp? Could you do that? And we've arrived at an answer that's almost yes. If you look at Basecamp, our own company, company of almost 70 people now, we more or less run the company. 80 to 90 to 95% of the time just on Basecamp. Yeah. Can you think of a time where you found yourself falling into the trap of maybe chasing down a new design trend or some hot new technology just for the sake of wanting to do the new thing and it sort of pushes that the core beliefs out of the way? Um, I remember there was a time when um, there was this like era of widgets and like card-based interfaces where everything was like everything was a card and it was like the future of web design or something it's like and i think we we explored that quite a bit actually with the first version of basecamp 3 before basecamp 3 changed into what it is today but everything was like this card and cards were sort of stacked and sort of stacked in a brick format and would kind of fill in the space and it looked really good like it had a it had a visual appeal but practically it, it wasn't there. And, and that's fine that we explored that. But I think we wouldn't have explored it had it not been like the thing to do at the time. That's one thing that definitely sticks out. I don't know if there's any technical things, David, that you've, I know you've always been like sort of pushing against the trends on that side, but. Yeah, I think um, this is one of the things we still struggle with. And sometimes the struggles change. So for a long time, especially with Basecamp, one of the technical operating principles was to have Screens that just did one thing. Don't have seven different features that all pop up into little things on a single screen. Yeah, and we stayed yeah. quite militant to that, to, to a point where some individual screens we have are a little, they're a little weak, actually, because they do too little, <laughs> right? There's, sure. It's always a trade-off. It's always a sort of a full span. And we did it in part because at the time, with the technology we had, what we were trading off was speed. If you have to render seven things on a single page and the page can't render until you have all the seven things ready, it's going to take longer than if the page did, did one thing. Right. Could we get the pages to be so fast that you wouldn't feel it was a problem to change between pages. Um, and we pursued that for a while and sometimes didn't. And then we ended up with a few pages that weren't that quick because they were trying to do five things at the same time. And sometimes that's also where that tension becomes between the different disciplines that like design wants one thing. Hey, it'd be nicer if this was just an overlay in line on a thing. And tech goes like, yeah, that's actually not that great for performance and these other things. And then sometimes you have these unlocking technologies. For us, that was um, Turbo and Turbo Frames. 
technologies that are part of this new hot wire thing that we're doing and building our front end with and we build all of hay with, it just allowed us to do new things that all of a sudden you could have the seven things on a page by loading them individually in a way that wasn't complicated. And that allowed us to design some or move closer on the technical end to what sometimes was the natural inclination from design. But actually just yesterday, I think it was, we were discussing on a, on a mid-cycle review this one design for a feature in Hay. And we were going down the path of like, ah, well, if it just updates part of the screen and we're like, why is it just a link? Could it just be a link that replaces the whole screen? Would that be good enough? And you're like, oh yeah, that would solve a lot of problems we're dealing with here, trying to figure this, that, and the other thing out. And then we did it. And I just saw this morning that the feature ship. So we went like, you know what? Just do the simple thing. Yeah, You don't have to get 100% fidelity out of everything, especially this feature, which is not a feature you're going to use like, 700 times a day where the micro fidelity is in, in, in high demand. And it was just more important to ship it. So that's an example of sometimes like the, the environment changes. So you make a certain set of decisions and trade-offs at a given time, and then certain things get easier and you can make some, some different trade-offs, but you're still trying to hold on to the fact that for the environmental factors that are present, we're, we're going we're gonna to do the, the simpler thing. So is it about waiting for that new trend or that new technology to settle into a place that it does accommodate your core focuses on things that won't change? I think it's more just about like, is it there? Can we do it in an easy way? I mean, we've never been apologetic about the fact that one of the components in choosing how to build something is how quickly can we do it? Yeah. You know what? We might have an idea for a feature but if that idea is manifested in a very complex way that would take a long time to build, go outside of our six-week cycles, we're just not going to do it. Yeah. So we let the environment and the materials influence our design decisions. We, we like to call it cutting with the grain. You can cut with the grain of the existing technology you have. You can cut with the grain of the web. You can cut with the grain of your environment. And that makes things easy. Um, but that sometimes means you have to change your mind, right? You might have a design in your head that isn't cutting with the grain at all. And that just means it's cumbersome and it's hard. It's going to be more code. It's going to take longer to maintain. You're investing in complexity, which uh, those are generally not the greatest investments. Fair. Well, I think that's a pretty good place to stop. Shall we open up the uh, the old listener mailbag? We need like a sound effect though, of like the crinkling of envelopes or the opening of a velour velvet kind of bag or something i mean i could just record me plugging my phone into this microphone right now uh here we have a question from peter hi i really enjoyed jason and david's conversation in response to the question about metrics in a recent episode as a product designer i'm very conscious of the drive at many companies to do quote data driven design I've always preferred a more data-informed approach. I'm wondering what the Basecamp product team's approach is to this. Thanks. The first thing is, I think, to recognize like what kind of work you like to do. Uh, this is sort of a weird, maybe a weird answer, but I've always been personally like more gut-driven, intuition-driven, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. I wouldn't take as much pleasure in just designing to the data. And I don't think I'd do as good of a job if that's what I had to do. So part of this, I think, is just understanding what your organization, what kind of organization you have and what kind of organization you want to be and what drives people. 
Um, we use data to inform a variety of different decisions, but it's it's not like it doesn't tell you what to do. It it provides a picture of of history, uh, and then from that point you can dra- derive some intuitions and some ideas. There's sometimes you use it to figure out like how often is something going to be used, how often is something used. For example, I'll give you a quick example. Um, uh, so Laura, who runs our customer success team. Is, is interviewing customers right now. And we have a feature in Basecamp called automatic check-ins, which we use religiously at Basecamp. It turns out they're not really frequently used by a lot of other companies. And a lot of people find them to be annoying. Sure. And so the question is, what do you do with that information? One is you could say, well, people don't use them, so let's lose them. But I don't think that's actually the answer. Part of it might be we can change the behavior. So right now we, by default, begin to ask people questions when they sign up and we could maybe turn that off. That would be something that could be uh, uh, something that's driven by data. It's also driven by qualitative research too, that you know she's talking to people and are saying this, but it's also then quantitative as well when we start looking at percentages. And then you can go, well, this feature is still a good idea, but maybe we're putting it too upfront. Maybe it's, it's distracting. Maybe people don't understand it initially. And so we're, we're hitting people too early with it and it's sort of in the way and they get frustrated by it. So what, what can we do to dial that down? So that's like a data and qualitative based information that, mm-hmm. that's sent to you. And then you, you come up with an idea based on that. So I think we do, we do use that. We do do that. But as far as coming up with new ideas, we typically are coming up with those, putting them into the product. And then we might come back and see how they're working, or we might have some ideas on how to change them and tweak them after that. But we typically push things live and, 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 and ship stuff that we feel good about first versus trying to feel certain about yeah. um, by using data that may or may not actually accurately reflect what we're trying to decide. Mm-hmm. I think it comes back to using data almost as a sort of uh, customer sounding board or whatever focus group and goes back to Ford's thing, what the customer wants is a faster horse. You have to follow your intuition for putting new things into the world. And then you can use the data to render a verdict. Did it work? Did people use the thing you created? Now, your creation has to be novel, or, or at least that's how we're doing it, right? Like we're, we're informing our creation of new things, often to quite a militant way. We were talking another episode about how version one of Hey was basically just the version of email that Jason or I wanted. No input, no data, no <laughs> market research of anything. This is just pure instinct, gut instinct. And then once it's in the wild, you can look at like, well, what are people using? What are they not using? Take some some feedback after the fact. I think you have to have... Uh, that intuition, you have to have that taste, you have to have that direction. This is why you're here. This is you're not just a sort of conduit for requests and numbers <laughs> and like, oh, they come in the one year and then they get uh, formed into features on the other side. No, I, I don't think that works very well. And this is one of the problems when you talk about metrics, you often talk about the sort of the tyranny of metrics. And one of the primary tyrannies of metrics is the fallacy that the only thing you can manage is what you can measure. So if we can't measure whether a feature is working or not, like it means it's worthless. No, there's the idea of complementary products and complementary features. And even if I don't use something all the time, like you look at this with cars, for example, EVs have faced this problem with range anxiety forever. And why is it there? Because like, yeah, twice a year, 
I take a road trip that's longer than 300 miles. Right. You'd think like, that's not a rational reason to buy a combustion car. Right. But people do. And they do it for that reason, right? So sometimes you have these very rare things that need to happen that actually is underpinning the whole purpose of buying the thing in the first place. So you got to be really careful with metrics because metrics appear as though they're truth. That's the real problem with them. Yeah. The numbers can't lie. Right. Which they totally can. And they don't lie by being wrong about the thing they're measuring. They're be- lying by being wrong about how important that is. Yeah. And how unimportant all the things you can't measure is, right? Like there are, they're focusing errors. They drive you to focus on that one thing you can measure. And now that's how we gauge whether this is a successor or not. When in fact, it could be a million other things. You just haven't figured out how to measure or you can't measure. Right. And then you ultimately have to fall back on like the, the ultimate measure is the business doing well, which is one of the things I've always respected Apple for this thing that they don't have individual business units, that they're not breaking it out like that, that the end of the day, like there's one number for the business and that's how kind of whether it does well or not. And that allows you to do things that can't justify themselves on their own merits. And sometimes those are the most magic things of all. And you become. A different kind of company, I think a hollow company, a pretend scientific company, if you only focus on the things you can measure. Yep. Well, perfect. Thank you, Peter. Uh, if any of you out there have a question for Jason or David, leave us a voicemail at 708-628-7850. Or better yet, record a voice memo on your phone and email it in to hello at rework.fm. But that will do it for this week. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about Van Halen golf clubs photoshop features uh in the essay tone is in your fingers uh so hopefully i'll get both of you to join me next week but for now i want to say thank you to jason freed thanks sean and thank you david heinemeyer hansen thanks we'll see you next week Alrighty. is a production of Basecamp. Our theme music is by Clipart. We're on the web at Rework.fm, where you can find show notes and transcripts for this and every episode of Rework. We're also on Twitter at Rework Podcast. If you're following along with the book, next week we'll be discussing the chapter, Tone is in Your Fingers. And if you like the show, I'd really appreciate it if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you're listening to this.